0: So, I love dinner tables. I love dinner tables, whether it's at a house or whether it's at a restaurant. I love being at a dinner table, and it's not just because of great food. I love being at a dinner table because in some ways it feels to me like a place of refuge, It feels like a break from a crazy work week or life week and you can sit with people that you care about and love and interact and it just feels great to have this pressure relief off and for me that tends to happen around a dinner table or at lunchtime around a table with friends and I just love to do that and there was a man who loved this probably even more than I do. His name was Martin Luther and Martin Luther was a theologian, pastor, reformer 500 years ago. And he would invite lots of people into his house and have them sit around his table. And he would have what he called table talks, where after a meal, they would just very informally talk about life, talk about current events, talk about theology, the Bible, what it's like to follow Jesus in that day and age. And it was just something that he loved to do. And the reason I'm telling you that is because uh, we are in a series uh, called The Amazing Christian where we're going through the book of Ephesians. We're going to be wrapping this series up next week. Um, But Martin Luther, when he looked at the book of Ephesians, he called the section that we are in now the hastafel, which means the house table. You see, as he let out the as he looked at the book of Ephesians and mapped it out, he said the first part, chapters one to three, are about Christian doctrine. The next part, chapters four to five and a half, are about Christian duty. And then he said the part that we are in, the last part of five and into six, are what he called the house table. Because he felt these were the areas of practical living where we gather around and we talk about how we apply all that we've learned up to this point in this book and how do we live it out. It's kind of where the rubber meets the road. And that's where we're at this morning. And this morning I'm excited because we are going to jump into a topic uh, that is amazing and dear to God's heart. We're going to be talking about marriage and how to have a magnificent marriage God's way. But we're also going to get a little controversial this morning. We're going to put our toe in the controversial pool because of a word that is in our text that our culture doesn't like and doesn't want us to like, and it's the word submit. We hate that word in our culture. We don't like it, and there's this... Charge statement that if you don't understand the context that stands out in this text that says wives submit to your husbands. And I'm seeing you uh, men in this room are a lot more godly than the men in the first service because the first service they were men were looking at their wives and pointing at them and taunting them. And as they were doing that I was getting my arrow ready and pulling out. So uh, obviously First service has some work to do, not here. You guys are doing well. This is a charge statement in our culture. However, I think it's only controversial because there's a lack of understanding about what it means. There's a ton of misunderstanding, mostly, I will admit, that has been brought about by pastors who may have been well-meaning or not, or by churches that haven't done the homework to really understand or by Christians who claim to honor the Bible but have only gone that deep into it, and they throw this around in a way that shouldn't be thrown around. And I think that's caused a ton of misunderstanding that it creates and generates this controversy. And the fact is, we need more teaching about this, not less. Some some churches shy away from these verses, and they stop talking about these verses because of the controversial nature, and I think that is wrong. I don't think that is the move that we should make. We should have more teaching and not shy away from these things and dive in, as we will see this morning. I just want to say right off the top, this text does not endorse men as more superior than women. It does not give husbands the right to order, demean, command, or control their wives, though that's the connotation that is given off sometimes. Kent Hughes says this about this text. It says, Truths of this text have been perverted and abused by disordered and sinful men. God's holy word in the hands of a religious fool can do immense harm. I've seen couch potatoes who order their wives and children around like the Grand Sultan of Morocco, adulterous misogynists with the domestic ethics of Jabba the Hutt, who cow their wives around with Bible verses about submission, Insecure men whose wives are demeaned public and personally. That is not biblical submission. That is not what this passage is saying. Just because religious fools misuse Scripture for selfish means, the last thing we should do in the church is stop talking about this verse. Because evil and distorted men have perverted Scripture does not mean we throw Scripture out. It means we dive into it all the more and look at what it clearly says. Today because of where our text falls, we're going to be talking about marriage and the husband-wife relationship and if, but if you are here and you're single, I want to say two things before we even get started. First of all, we honor singleness in this church. We love singleness in this church. We honor it and I want you to know that you are not less than for being single. Singleness is not a less than thing. The other thing I want you to know is you are not incomplete as a child of God or in the Church of Jesus Christ because you are single it 's a beautiful gift, and you should be it 's a calling that is to be embraced and so if that 's where you are at this point in your life, know that you have a place among us at the family across View church and it 's an esteemed honored place. Second, I want to tell you if you 're single, everything I talk about well near everything I talk about this morning. Uh, can be applied to almost every human relationship. And so it's not like there's nothing you're going to, it's not like you're not going to get anything out of today's service and this message because we are going to gather around the table of God's word and we're going to look at what it says. And every time we do that, if we come with the right heart, we will walk away with something from God that he wants to teach us, right? Right? So with that, I invite you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 21 to 35. And Ephesians is kind of towards the end of the book of the Bible. If you hit Timothy or Hebrews or James or you back up, go back to the left, I'll be on page 1039 in the Worship Center Bible. And I want to open by talking about something that I feel generates the controversy. It's the foundational passage of this text that needs to be the backdrop as we get started that is often blown off and ignored. And it's so blown off and ignored, I call it the forgotten foundation. And I want to dive in. The forgotten foundation is found in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. It says, Submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. Giving th- go to verse 20, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. A friend of mine is building a house, invited me out to see what was going on. I watched the foundation was poured and they started putting the walls on the foundation. And to see there and get a visual of what can happen if the foundation is off was something that uh, hit me like a ton of bricks, especially as I thought about this message. If the foundation is off, everything's going to be out of kilter. And so many times when it comes to this passage, people start with a faulty foundation, forgetting what verse 21 says. They jump right to verse 22 and so on. But 21 is this umbrella of how human relationships are supposed to function. And Christians have forgotten this foundation. This is the foundation for every human relationship submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. This idea of submission that Paul is talking about was never ever intended to be a one-way street of wives to husbands. Rather, the submission means seeking the best of the other because in the fear of God, we realize that every single human being is created in God's image. And as we interact with every human being, we need to interact with them as somebody who's created in God's image regardless of their gender, regardless of what they believe, regardless of where they come from. They are an image of God if they're a human being, and that is how we need to interact, and this is the foundation. And Paul lays this foundation throughout the book. He started in Ephesians 4, uh, chapters 1 and 2. He said, Therefore, the I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to live worthy of the calling you have received with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And then he goes on to the text that Pastor Chris did a great job preaching last week. Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. And this whole thought and heart of Paul flows right into Ephesians 5.21 of submitting to one another in, uh, in the fear of Christ. The foundation of marriage... And all healthy human relationships is a submission to one another, one and all. And that's what we have to grab. That's what that says here. It's the overarching umbrella. Charles Chuck Swindoll says this, the whole overarching context informs us that everything we do in the Christian life is to be governed by godly Christ-like behavior, humility, gentleness, Patience, tolerance, love, and mutual submission. See, we need to recover this foundation. We need to go back and instead of starting at verse 22, we need to start at verse 21. Today more than ever, this text says to submit. And we need to do that, to have dialogue that doesn't tear people apart, even when we disagree. To have interactions with people that may we that we may not agree with, but yet they're still made in God's image. And so we need to have this whole idea of biblical submission, which is this: biblical submission is both seeking the other's best and seeking Christ's honor in relationships. That's what this verse says in verse 21: seeking the other's best and seeking Christ's honor. That's what I want you to grab from this. It's placing another's needs above your own. It's pay attention to someone else's cares, not just yours. Author, Bible teacher, and theologian Denise Larson Cooper says this, Submission is placing someone's needs above yourself, which is a basic Christian command for all. A loving husband submits his will to that of Christ. And in doing so, imitates him in the marriage relationship. In this context, the wife willingly surrenders to her husband just as her husband chooses to surrender his will to Christ. Submission based on love brings peace and harmony to a family. See, part of the problem is when you hear the word submission just right out of the bat, all sorts of false images pop into your head. When we hear the word submission, we often think of dictators, We often think of commanders. We often think of oppressors who are putting their will in power on a person and that person has to submit. But that's not the idea of biblical submission at all. When we hear the word submission, you know what picture should fill our mind as Christians? The person of Jesus Christ. When we think submission, we should think Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was the ultimate one who modeled biblical submission when he left his throne of glory and to come down and enter in humility into humanity, pausing his glory, veiling who he was in perfect humility and submission to God the Father for the sake of others, you and I among them. Submission is putting another's needs and dignity above my own, and every single Christian is commanded to do that. That is the foundation that has been forgotten. And now, Paul turns to the most intimate of human relationships, that which is a marriage between a husband and a wife, and he takes the principle of submission to wives in verses 22 to 24, and then he will take the principle of submission to husbands in verses 25 to 30. So we're going to start because of the order with submitting to one as the role of a wife. Look at verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Pause, two things here. First of all, in my Bible, right after the word submit, if you look, there's a little letter. Mine is E. If you're using a, sanctuary, a Bible here in the worship center, it's the letter A. You probably have a little letter next to the word submit. That means there's a footnote. You look down in the bottom of the page, find that letter. For me, it's E. And then I'll say verse 522. And it says, other MSS, omit, submit. That means other manuscripts mean that word submit is not there. If you look at the original Greek language of this text, The word submit is not in verse 22. It reads, wives to your husbands as to the Lord. Why is it not there? Because it's so connected to verse 21, it pulls that idea of submission all the way through the whole text. Submitting to one another in the fear of Christ, wives to your husbands as to the Lord. That's how it reads originally. It pulls it in. And I did that, I wanted to highlight this to show you how linked the rest of this is to verse 21 it says as to the lord that does not mean as some chauvinists have interpreted that wives are submit or to submit to their husband just like they submit to god That is not the case. It means in their submission, wives are doing that as a duty they owe to the Lord. As they live out this godly act of submission, it's creating worship to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. It's living out a life of worship by their role of when they do that act. That's what that means. We covered what submission is. Now let's look at why. Look at verse 23. We should wives submit to your husbands as the Lord because the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. There's a lot of debate with these verses of what does that word head mean. In the Greek the word is kephel and the most basic interpretation of kephel is head That's why it's listed there. There are some that believe a better interpretation is source, like a headwater sourcing a river. However, the overwhelming amount of Bible scholars, no matter what side of the aisle they are on, would land that this means head, as in leader or initiator. But we cannot stop there because what kind of leader are men called to be? If you look and continue with this, It says, verses 24 to 27, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. We'll get to that in a second. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. Men, husbands, this is your call to stand in love and love your wives as Christ loved the church. Husbands, this is your call to reject passivity, accept responsibility, and lead courageously. No matter what the culture says of the role of a husband, this is what God is calling you to do. To love your wife the way that Christ loved the church. What did Christ do and how did he love the church? He died for the church. He did the ultimate act of love. That is how you are supposed to lead. This picture gives a direct reference of how Jesus loves his church and how the loving response of the church is to love Jesus Christ. That is the picture that this is. Marriage is a picture of what Jesus has done to the church and how the church responds to Jesus Christ. God helped the man who thinks this means they have a license for dominance or leadership. Leadership in marriage has limits. It can never command what God forbids. It can never be used selfishly. This means a wife lives in a way that supports her husband's God given mandate to live a godly life and receive his initiation in that marriage, and husbands should initiate and lead by selfless, loving direction. Now, this does not mean that wives never ever lead. It does not mean that wives have no part in a decision-making process or leadership in the marriage. It doesn't mean that at all. I remember one time we were at an elders retreat when we were part of Woodlands Church and we were talking about these verses and marriage and roles and how this all works. And there was an elder who sat there and he said, I can tell you right now, after 45 years of marriage, I can count on one hand The number of times where in our marriage we were at a stalemate and I just had to make the call. And another elder said, and that's the hand that you have no fingers on. Right? (laughs) This doesn't work like this dictatorship that happened. There's a, a, a gathering that happens and we are stronger together and God knew that. That's why he created marriage. So now let's look at what this does not mean. We looked at what submission means, but what does it not mean? It does not mean spiritual inequality. Both genders, men and women, are equal in value and worth and dignity. And you see that from Genesis all the way to Revelation. In Genesis when God created man and woman he said it was good. He ascribes worth and dignity and value to both men and women throughout scripture. And Galatians says in 3:23 there is no Greek nor Jew, no slave nor free, nor male nor female. We are all one in Jesus Christ when we come and are brought into Christ and live out his faith. It's not an issue of value or dignity. Men and women are both equally valued and have dignity and worth hugely as images of God that he created. The next thing it does not mean, it does not mean that slavish obedience. It does not mean slavish obedience. Some may think, let's go back to verse 24. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. Now some look at that and they think a wife must do everything her husband says. That is not what this is saying. In everything takes into account the example of Jesus Christ. In everything means consistent with the character of Jesus. It means consistent with the character of Jesus. That's what this is talking about. A wife is never to follow her husband into sin. Christ alone is a wife's supreme authority, and any leadership the husband gives should reflect Jesus. Also, a wife is never supposed to stay in a place where she is being harmed or abused. That's not what this passage is endorsing at all. John Stott says this, we have to be very careful not to overstate the biblical teaching on authority. It does not mean that the authority of a husband is unlimited or that wives are required to unconditional obedience. No, the submission required is to God's authority delegated to human beings. If therefore they misuse their God-given authority by demanding what God forbids or forbidding what God demands, then our duty is no longer conscientiously to submit but conscientiously to refuse do so. That's what that means. Another thing this doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that a wife can never question her husband. To question a husband's reasoning or to call him out lovingly on ungodly behavior is not a violation of this scripture passage. If needed, a wife should Stand with Christ against her husband with a humble, loving spirit, which indicates her desire that her husband would walk in the ways of this passage, that his headship in this passage would take its proper place. And the way that is done is all about the attitude. It's all about the spirit of how it is done. Now, as a pastor, I just want to say, to the wives who are in a difficult marriage, perhaps to an ungodly husband or someone not interested in biblical things, or for that matter, husbands who are in a marriage to a wife who is not interested in these things, my heart goes out to you. Jesus' heart goes out to you. The heart of this church goes out to you. We understand that is a very, very difficult place to be And we don't have a whole lot of answers other than living out your faith the best you can to your ability and pray, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, that spiritual awakening happens in your spouse's life. Every day I get... When you're in that situation, are filled with tensions of how we are supposed to do this, how we are supposed to live this out. And living a godly life in a fallen world can only be done by dependence on Jesus Christ. And moment by moment, grace walks. And that's where you are. And as your pastor and as your church, we are with you in that. And with that, I want us to go on and look at submitting to one another as a husband. Look at verses 28 to 32. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church. Since we are members of his body, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ and the church. How is a husband to love his wife? Like Jesus loves the church. What did Jesus do for the church? He died for the church. He died for the church. He laid down his life for the church. It was uh, in John 15, it says, No greater love could there be than a person who lays down their life for another. That's the pattern and model husbands are to be for their wives. The word for love there is the word agape. Agape has lots of different aspects to it, and I want to cover some of them. First of all, it's surrender and sacrifice. Husbands are to sacrifice themselves for their wives. Sacrifice in love to their wives. Husbands are to live in extreme humility, modeling Jesus and giving up whatever is needed to foster a healthy marriage. Husbands, listen to me. If your love for your wife is not sacrificial, she knows it. If you are selfish in your love, it will negatively impact your marriage and your family. If you are unwilling to give up whatever is necessary for your wife. She can tell, and this makes her role difficult. It also will create a downward spiral for your marriage. And what is the solution? Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. Sacrifice, selfless, enduring affection. That's how Christ loved the church. How else does Christ love the church? Christ is forgiving. A husband is to embrace grace and mercy, not hold grudges. Extending compassion, extending understanding, not blame or shame. How else? Honoring. Peter says this in 1 Peter 3, 7, Honor your wives, and just as Jesus seeks to display his glory in the church, Husbands should honor their wives, and in doing so, they draw attention to who God is and what He's done, and they uplift their wives in the process. That's how husbands live out this act of submission in the role of a husband. Now, I want to look at some ways that we practically live this out. So much more could be said on this topic. I could do a whole series on it, and should, and someday we will. But we need to sum this up. Look at verse 33. To sum up. How cool is that? Some of you didn't even catch my cool little thing there, but you'll get it later. We need to sum this up. To sum up, it says this. Each one of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. What does that look like? In mutual submission, love and respect both. I know there's a great book that came out Uh, many years ago now, called Love and Respect by uh, Emerson Eggerts. And he talks about this role of husbands, love your wives. Christ, respect your husbands. And it lays out, and it's a good principle, but one of the mistakes from that book that he doesn't say in the book, but I think that people who read it misinterpreted, is they think like, so the husband's role is to love his wife but never respect her, and the wife's role is to respect her husband but never love him. That's not what that book is saying. That's not, there's a mutual love and respect of both husband and wife in the marriage relationship. It's not an exclusive thing. It's not black and white. We have to be careful how we apply scripture to our day, daily lives. There's gray areas. The principles in God's word are good, godly. They will never change. However, our job is to take these principles, work hard to interpret what they mean, and then work hard at how we apply them to our lives. You can't just take this and say, this is how it applies over across the board everywhere you go. That is bad practice for the Bible. There's not a black and white approach to applying and interpreting Scripture. We have to have biblical wisdom, insight, love, and truth. There's no easy way of doing this. You can't just take a passage like when Jesus said, if your eye causes you to lust, gouge it out, and say, okay, let's go gouge out our eyes. If we were supposed to interpret the Bible like that, there'd be no eyeballs left in the whole church. You have to, it's not that simple and easy. You can't take the easy way out and say, well, this is what it says, there you go. No, you have to apply it to life, understand what it means, work hard at interpretation and application. It involves work. God's word's a gift, but we don't treat it in an unhealthy way. We treat it with respect and honor, and we give it the time and attention and heart and wisdom to apply it accurately. In summary, the best example of how you are to be a husband, husbands, is to look to Jesus Christ. And wives, the best example of how you are to be a wife, look to Jesus Christ. I want to close by giving you quickly some basic principles of how you should create a God honoring healthy marriage. Number one, never, never publicly speak of your spouse's faults or weaknesses. Never publicly speak of your spouse's faults or weaknesses. I'm not talking about a counseling situation. If you're in a counseling situation with a pastor or a counselor and it's a private thing, then you honorably bring those things up as they need to be in life. But what I'm talking about is you never ever gather ladies with your friends and rip your husbands. And you never ever gather guys with your friends and you rip your wives. Do not Ever bring your spouse's faults into public light in conversation? It tears apart love and respect. The U.S. government figured out a secret long time ago that men will give up their lives and die for respect and honor. The same principle holds true in a marriage. If they're being ripped apart in a corner with a bunch of women, it puts a chink in their heart and tears apart. Same is true for women. If guys are ripping apart their wives with a group of guys, you are not lovingly respecting and, and holding high the dignity of your wife. Marriage is to be a safe place where the faults are come out and you deal with those faults, but they're contained in this place of safety where there's grace and there's love because none of us are perfect at this. And how great is love when it creates a safe place where you can be imperfect And still be okay. That's the intimacy of marriage. And that's what it's all about. And that's how God intended it to be. So you never publicly speak of your spouse's faults or weaknesses. Number two, you never play unhealthy head games with your spouse. So many times in conflict, we are quick to revert to little immature ways of thinking. Well, if they're going to do that, then I'm going to do this. Or they're going to do that, I'm going to do this. Or I'm not going to do that, I'll see what they do with that. Do not play head games. You provide direct, clear, loving communication with your spouse. It sounds like this You know, when you take that amount of money out of our account without talking to him about it, I feel disrespected. Did you hear the difference between that and you always go do that? You take this money out of our account. When you do that action, I feel this. You are being direct, you're being honest, you're being respectful. That's how godly communication needs to happen in a marriage. And then the flip side to receive that kind of thing is, so let me understand. When I did that, that hurt and disrespected you. I'm sorry, that wasn't my intention. And I will make sure when that happens again, we talk about it. You see the difference between blowing up and doing this? Good, healthy communication in marriage is key. And when I do my premarital counseling, I have a whole sheet of phrases like that that I give couples. And if you're interested in it, you email me, and I will email it to you this week. But good, healthy communication is key. Number three, be intentional about building into your marriage. There are so many amazing books and studies and tools, and it's so good to take that and be intentional in your marriage. Don't let your marriage just exist Let it be dynamic. Let it be flourishing. Take all the money and time and effort you can and pour it into your marriage. It's the best investment you can give if you're married in this life. And just a little side note here. When conflicts come, guys, and again, this is just a general statement. It doesn't apply across the board every single time. Guys tend to want to just fix it and move on. Ladies, again, just a general statement. I know there's exceptions to the rule. Generally are more concerned about being heard than it being fixed. And guys, if you could learn this, I guarantee you your marriage will go up seven notches like that. When it comes to the, when you take money out of our account like that and don't talk about it, I feel disrespected. Normal reaction from guys is, okay, I'll never do that again. I won't do it. I'm fixing it. Done. If you stopped and instead of going to the fix-it mode, And you went into, okay, she wants to be heard mode, and you just sat there, and your wife could tell that you're really listening because you're locked in and engaged, and you say, so when I did that, that really bothered you. I guarantee you, it'll create more intimacy in your marriage when you start listening and stop trying to fix right away. You can fix later, but I guarantee you, if you listen like that, you won't even have to fix it it'll be that good of a thing. Number four, remember you were made to be controlled. What? What are you talking about? You just violated everything you just said. Nope. You were made to be controlled, not by a human being, but by God Almighty. You were created to be controlled by the Spirit of God. And when you give your life to Jesus Christ, He takes the throne in your heart, and you were made, the human being flourishes when they live according to design, and the way a human being was lived according to design is to be submitted under the control of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. You were made to be lived Uh, and controlled by the Spirit of God. Life that is not controlled by the Spirit of God is chaos, rebellion, and hardship. And when we become Christians and we give our lives to Christ, that means we are submitting ourselves to the control of the Holy Spirit. The life of a Christian is surrendered, submitted, controlled, and empowered. Theologian Dennis Kinlaw says this, the church is a body of people who knows someone who exists beyond themselves who know that person to be the holy spirit it's a wonderful thing to understand that a world exists beyond my grasp even though i cannot see touch measure or control it in fact i was made for it to control me the marvelous reality is that the ruler of that world, cares more about you and me than we can ever imagine. And if we open ourselves to his presence, he can transform our routine daily existence so that it becomes a window looking into heaven. You know what I know about myself? Everywhere I resist God's word, no matter what chapter, what verse, it's an area of rebellion in my heart against God where I am not submitting to him. The life of a Christian is a life that is controlled by the Holy Spirit. Marriage is like an expensive, handcrafted tapestry. Good marriages can't be stitched together in a hurry. In fact, weaving this amazing tapestry of marriage involves love, surrender, sacrifice, forgiveness, intimacy, nurture, affection. And if you can't do it perfectly. We can't live out these passages perfectly. We have to give each other grace. And even in giving each other grace, it gets woven into this tapestry of a magnificent marriage made by the grace of God. That is our aim. That is our prayer. Let's pray that that happens. Please bow your heads with me. Father in heaven, I ask right now, by the power of the Spirit, will you take this thing called marriage, which is amazing, which is one of the greatest gifts you've given not only human beings but the world because it's such a beautiful reflection of who you are and how you relate to your church. I pray that you would redeem this concept of marriage. God, I pray for those who hear my voice now who may be saying my marriage is nothing close to that. God, I thank you that you are an expert in those situations. You are the expert redeemer. You are the expert diagnostic person. You can come in and meet us in those places and create an amazing and beautiful testimony if we submit our lives to you. And so God, I pray right now for the marriage's of Crossview Church, and I pray for the marriages of Wisconsin Rapids. Would you do something, God? Would you bring a revival? Would you transform these marriages to reflect your intention? God, I ask that you'd help us as Crossview Church to be a leading influence in our city of what marriages look like, not for our own Benefit and fame and glory, but for the sake of you and for the sake of the families in this city. God, this is serious stuff, and I ask that you'd help us to see the weight of this and help us to realize that this is too big for us to get around and fix on our own. But our right, proper place is to fall before your throne and say, We need you in this. We need your love, we need your truth. And we need your grace to walk this out. And we ask for all this. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand.